You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers. And we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. Okay. All right. We're back. We're back. Jess, how are you on this rainy day? I don't know if it's raining when our listeners hear this, but if if it's any day in 2020 recently, odds are it is because it's been raining nonstop. I don't know what the weather's, what's happening these days. Yeah, no, I'm good. Rainy days are hard for me because I have to get like, I have to to be self-motivated and dig deep for joy <laughs> there <laughs> there you know um, I look forward to these moments so this is good and I'm really excited about our guest today I'm excited about the conversation it is all the buzz in my household right now we are mm. all talking about voting we're all trying to think through I I'm going to share something that I wasn't going to share because I figure I'm gonna get a lot of slack about this but I'm gonna say it anyway so I participated in the mail to vote I dropped my ballot off I voted a week ago and dropped my ballot off. And so, you know, I've got friends who are like, what are you talking? Don't do that. Your vote won't count and all that business. And I'm like, I dropped it off. I feel like we should be able to have some faith in the lady who took my ballot. So (laughs) I don't know. And I got a note that it was recorded. So I'm feeling good about that. I got my sticker well before early voting started. And my son is excited to vote. This will be his first official election. He got to vote, you know, he got to register early at 17, but now this will be his first election. I'm excited that he gets to vote in a presidential election mm-hmm. and um, is able to ask some good questions. So it's good. We're excited. We're nervous. It's like the upside down world. What's the name of that show? You're talking about uh, Stranger Things? The world yeah, yeah, where yeah. Like, there's a world uh, underneath the world? I'm feeling like I get glimpses of that sometimes these days. <laughs> uh, I've not been watching the news much. I've been trying to like stay, again, joyful, but... Mm. Yo, it really feels a little mm. upside down, stranger things these days. So I, I'm really anxious to get this election underway and, and, and get rolling. So how about you, friend? What's going on with you? Yeah, all of what you shared. I, it's so cool, just by the way, like to think about, I almost envy you or almost wish, I envy your son. I envy Trey a little bit because I know the kind of mom that you are. And like, I almost wish... That when I was 17, going on 18, I realized the significance of voting. The way mm-hmm. that I know that you are teaching your son to really carry the weight of this moment and how significant that is and not to take it for granted. And I just, I look back on my, as you're sharing, I just think about like, I'm entering into my 17 year old self. And I just, I, I know I did not appreciate the weight of it. And I think a lot of that was soaked in my own privilege of like, Voting didn't really, because I'd never, voting was never, I didn't know anyone or it was never a threat of anyone like to, to, that it would be taken away, right? Like there's just, there, there yeah. is no one in my community in which that would be like, oh, that's a thing that we should prize because it means something. Because again, my, my voice, again, like as a white guy, you're growing up in environments where you're not proximate to people who, who those realities are not given or granted or, you know, just paved the way for the same way. It's like, you just don't, you cannot appreciate the significance and the symbolism of it all. And so 
Yeah, for me, I think I carry the, I'm carrying a definitely a new lens into this election cycle. I'm ready to turn a corner, right? I mean, I think that yeah. this is, we talk about a lot in the previous episodes that 2020 and COVID haven't, we talk about the emphasis of, yeah, COVID has created some things from some problems, but it also, I think more so has revealed issues that were already there. And I think that right. very much ties into this conversation that has me, I'm ready to lean in and just, I, I know I have so much more to learn and I want to lean in. And I think our guest today has so much more, to, has so much to teach me on this journey of like, man, there's so much history. And even like leaning into the, the stats coming into this conversation around voting and the history here, here in North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. Of yeah. the messy, broken, messed up, unjust, you pick a word, like the story of how we got to this place and around voting, it is a very much a broken story. And, you know, we're not going to fix that this time around for this. We're seeing some of these issues pop up all the time. And if, I know you're not on the news, but I'm seeing, you know, there's a lot of, I'm going to use the words that I use around the Shields household that I don't think is the first time I've ever used it on this podcast, but shenanigans. There are, there are some shenanigans because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just crazy stuff, but people have done and, and historically and are still doing, you know, to, to yeah. keep power or keep other people from having a voice. And it's just like, this whole podcast is about just justice, right? And, and addressing injustice. And I could not think of a more important conversation for us to have today with our guest a week out from the most, it feels like the most significant election of our lifetime. I can't think of another one that's more significant in my lifetime. So all that is, I guess I didn't really give a lot of personal updates, but you didn't I, give your check-in. I hope you're I doing okay on top of I didn't of give my that. check-in. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. We, uh, Shields Household is doing good. It's hard to separate, you know, it's like hard to separate all the things of like, how am I doing personally? Yeah. Especially as you're gearing up for just so much going around, on around you, but no, I'm, I'm doing well, you know, ReCity is in a, is a cool season where we're gearing up for our kind of our end of year, kind of raising awareness for the things that we're doing to kind of move this mission forward. And, and honestly, that makes even, I, I guess I'm just like, the, I'm having a hard time coming up with personal updates right now because like I'm holding the stories of those around me at ReCity really dear to my heart that are affected by this issue. And like, mm-hmm. while this isn't personal for me, I don't have the lived experience of being on the wrong side of feeling like my voice is being attacked you know, in a systematic way when it comes to exercising my right as a citizen. Like I carry the weight of being proximate to those who that very much is the case. And so for me, I'm just like, I'm, I'm wanting to do them justice. Honestly, I, I want to do them justice in this conversation because it's, it's wrong what is happening to our neighbors that have been impacted by the criminal justice system, formerly justice involved, like that their voice is muted. Because they have a voice and their their voice is powerful and like I, my life has been changed by it. And like I, I want, I don't want that to be the case. So that's okay. sorry, that's well, not that's really a personal good. update, but it it's is. It's not, but it does make me want to dig in. I, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to like like really unpack this for our listeners so that they understand. You know, we do have the luxury of doing research in advance of each of these and getting a little bit more thoughtful and knowledgeable around this this these each topic every week. But now it's time to just sit back and, and fill in those gaps, right. With our guest. So yeah, you want to introduce let's, Daryl? You let's got do him? it. Let's do it. All yeah. Right. Our guest on the show today is uh, Daryl Atkinson of forward justice. Daryl, are you uh, on, on the call? Can you hear us? Yes, I can. I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can yeah. loud and hey, clear. Loud Good and clear. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Good morning. We're really looking forward to this conversation with you, Daryl. I told you offline, you know, I've been 
personally following your work um, and the work of Forward Justice and your team. And, you know, that it's based here uh, in Durham, but I know it has, has a, a scope that is beyond the city limits here. But just the work that you're doing, I mean, even the name itself, hopefully for our listeners, that every episode we're, we're de- leaning into issues of justice, amplifying voices who are addressing injustice. Our listeners should already see the relevancy of, of why you're on this call and the, and the name of your organization. I'm going to introduce you a little bit for those who may be less familiar with, with you personally, and then we're going to just jump straight into this conversation. So Daryl Atkinson is a, an experienced civil and human rights attorney and member of the Just Leadership USA Advisory Board. He was the senior staff attorney at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, where he focused on criminal justice reform issues, particularly in removing the legal barriers triggered by contact with the criminal justice system. Prior to his tenure at SCSJ, Daryl was a staff attorney at the North Carolina Office of Indigent Defense Services, where he helped develop the Collateral Consequence Assessment Tool, or CCAT, an online searchable database that allows the user to identify the collateral consequences triggered by North Carolina convictions. In 2014, Daryl was recognized by the White House as a re-entry and employment champion of change for his extraordinary work to facilitate employment opportunities for people with criminal records. He received a BA in political science from Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina, and a JD from the University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Daryl, welcome onto the call again. We are excited to to jump into this conversation with you. Clearly, you are well-versed to speak with authority and wisdom uh, in ways that our our listeners should be very, hopefully, are leaning in 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 such a relevant conversation for our time leading up to, to this significant election here in 2020. So before we get to what you do, we just want to spend a little time diving into, tell us a little bit more about just who you are, you know, your story. This is very much a story-driven podcast that we kind of amplify issues by kind of helping tell the stories of people who are working on those issues. So before we jump into the issues, just tell us a little bit about your background um, and how you got to be doing the work that you're doing now. Yeah, um, I thank you for having me this morning. You know, I didn't one day wake up and decide that this was going to be my life trajectory. Uh, life forces kind of propelled me in that direction. In 1996, I was convicted of a first-time nonviolent drug crime and sentenced to 10 years in prison. I served a mandatory minimum of 40 months on that 10-year sentence. And this was in 1996, two years after the passage of the 94 Crime Bill, which prohibited prisoners being able to access Pell Grants. So no post-secondary education opportunities. I went into prison with a high school diploma. I came out with a high school diploma. Fortunate enough for me, I had a loving family that could provide me food, clothing, and shelter, and I didn't have those immediate pressures pressing down upon me. And I was able to think, make a plan. Went back to school, got my associate's degree, bachelor's degree, law degree, licensed to practice law in Minnesota and North Carolina, built a practice area that's exclusively focused on the restoration of the civil and human rights of people who've been in contact with the criminal legal system, champion of change, work in the Obama administration as the first formerly incarcerated person ever hired by the U.S. Department of Justice. But despite all of those accolades, if I move back to the place of my birth, Tuskegee, Alabama, I was born on campus uh, because that's where my parents went to college. If I move back to the place of my birth, I can't vote right now. I'm disenfranchised right now in the state of Alabama because I still owe them money associated with my felony conviction. So these things aren't esoteric for me. These things aren't things that I wake up and study. This is stuff that I feel every single day, right? 
And I like to think of myself in as progeny and part of a long, you know, arc of justice and struggle that has been led by the people who are most impacted. We're seeing a, a generational shift, whether you're talking about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg or John Lewis, but what those folks had in common is that they were the ones fighting against the boot of oppression. They were impacted by that. Ginsburg was impacted by the oppression that women faced. That's why she became the Thurgood Marshal of the women's movement. John Lewis was impacted by the oppression that he faced. That's why, you know, he became the person that he was. I'm impacted by these things. That's why I wake up and go hard on them every day. Not because I get paid to do it. Not because it seems like a niche issue that's hip, slick, and cool right now, where everybody wants to be on the side of Black folks. This is my life. So that's why I do what I do. That's how I got here today. Thank you. Thank you for that story and for sharing it with our listeners. That's powerful for me as I hear you talk about this because you, I think you might've heard as we did the check-in that this will be my son's first opportunity to vote in the election. He turned 18 in June and he's been paying attention. He's been asking questions. His stepmom's an attorney and is working on these issues all the time. And so he kind of gets it everywhere. From every location. I will be requiring him to listen to this podcast. I don't require him to listen to my podcast. So I didn't know, don't know if you know that, Rob, but he is not required. <laughs> but this one he will be because I want him to better understand voter suppression, specifically in the state in which he lives. I think sometimes it can get so broad or it can be headlined. To your point, it's so personal. And to your point, Rob, it is a privilege. I think my son doesn't fully, he appreciates this privilege, but I don't know that he fully appreciates the space in which we live in today and how important this election is. He's learning though. And so I want us to talk a little bit about voter suppression and imagine that our listeners don't understand it. So if you wouldn't mind unpacking voter suppression outside of context clues, what does that mean? How does that show up? And why is this a focal issue right now? Like what, what's on the line? Yeah, um, you know, voter suppression isn't new. This is, this is part and parcel of who we are as America, who North Carolina has been. Our biggest fights in this country have been about who's included in the we and we the people. At one point, the we was very, very narrow, white male property owners. And we fought to get black folks included. We fought to get women included. Even today, you know, our most contentious debates, our biggest quarrels, whether you're talking about immigration, is who's part of that we? Because see, once you're part of that we, you get certain benefits, rights, and privileges, right, that come with being a part of the we. So the suppressing of who's part of that we is nothing new. Voter suppression can take a number of different forms. I mean, we're talking about, we're going to be digging a little bit deeper into felon disenfranchisement, but, you know, we have a history in North Carolina of literacy tests, of poll taxes, of how many bubbles are in a bar of soap, or how many jelly beans do you count in that jar, and felon disenfranchisement as tools to undermine the voting power of communities of color and poor white folks engaging in fusion politics with those communities of color. It's part and parcel of who we are as a state. For example, felon disenfranchisement did not exist in our state constitution until 1877. Let's track what 1877 is. That's right on the heels of radical reconstruction, 1865 to 1877. And in the 1868 constitution, there were a number of progressive strides that newly, you know, minted fusion political coalition put together. 
one of them being a ban on property qualifications, which, you know, maybe I'll talk about a little bit later. And we argued it in a case uh, against our current felon disenfranchisement statute. But our first time having felon disenfranchisement did not happen until black folks and poor white folks banded together to put progressive policies in place in North Carolina. Then it was implemented in 1877 with the specific aim at muting and neutering the gains of the 15th Amendment and radical reconstruction. So suppression is who we are. <laughs> it's who we always have been. And, and we have to tell the truth about who this country has been, who this state mm-hmm. has been, so we can begin to have a true reckoning to do something different. We can't move forward unless we truly tell the truth and reckon with the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Daryl, I mean, there's so many threads that we could pull and chase here because you're right. I mean, you're referencing the 1870s, even flashing forward. I mean, this isn't this isn't agent history, right, either. I mean, this is even in the last decade or two, people can think, oh, yeah, you're referencing things past tense. But we have we've gotten better over time. But the, the stats just don't really back that up. And even just hitting it home, since most of our listeners are listening from North Carolina, our state's history is really broken when it comes to what we've done around the right to vote. Even in referencing you know, articles we looked at preparing for this call, you know, something like the in 2013, the North Carolina legislator patching HB 589 or otherwise known as the monster voter suppression law, right? So if it's got that kind of name, you know what I'm about to say is not going to be anything super good. But you know, HB 589 requiring voter identification but did not allow the forms of identification most frequently held by people of color. The monster law also shortened the early voting period and eliminated same-day voter registration and youth pre-registration. Also, SB 325, a bill that would eliminate the most popular day for early voting, the final Saturday before the election. In 2016, 200,000 people voted on that final Saturday, which is a day used disproportionately by African-Americans. And some of this is like, it's right there in plain sight, like when you turn on the news, there's politicians are so brazen about this. Like you'll even they'll go on air talking about, yeah, we actually don't want voter turnout in some cases. Like we, it's it's bad for us. We're, we're trying to discourage people voting. And so when you look at the history, I think how far have we come and who gets included in the we from the 1870s to the 2010s and 13s and 16s? I mean, I think we have to say not as far as probably some of us would like to think we have. No, I, I would agree. Uh, you know, that 2013 monster suppression bill, uh, we litigated that case and the Fourth Circuit, you know, said that the General Assembly was trying to divest people of their right to vote, particularly African-Americans with almost surgical precision. So, yeah, I mean, we want to think of ourselves as a post-racial society. Mm. We want to think of ourselves of providing equal protection under the law to all people. But it's just not true. And until we really admit that, we can't correct it. If we're always operating under the facade <laughs> that, you know, everything is working swimmingly and that not only do we have these historical moorings that we have to undo, but also, you know, because it's tracking contemporarily and producing the same results just using kind of different means. Mm. So, I mean, I hope Folks who, you know, you mentioned proximity, who may not be proximate to um, people who've had to really fight 
just to be able to cast a ballot. You know what I mean? It, it, mm. And it, it's such, what's unfortunate though, is it's such hypocrisy for us as a country, right? When you think about the pride that we took internationally in so-called liberating Iraq, and you saw all of the, the women and citizens and people there with the, the marked dot or the marked finger representing them having exercised their right to vote. And we spilt human blood and put forth enormous investment and costs to produce that for people outside of this country. While in turn, mm. to people inside of the country, we only allow mm. in Texas one mm. mailbox, one drop off mailbox per county. First day of early voting yesterday, you know, we're part of Forward Justice is part of a network of advocacy organizations that offer voter protection infrastructure. If you have any problems or see any problems, call one eight six six our vote and report those problems. And because of that hotline yesterday, first day of early voting, we got reports from five different counties that people were outside of polling places, you know, shouting epithets, threatening and and being intimidating, if you will, you know, blocking the entrance, uh, you know. So these things are happening in our state, in our country, and it's purposeful to suppress Mm -hmm. some folks from feeling comfortable in expressing their voice through the right to vote. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the important work that you're doing with Forward Justice, and I'd love to just like, let's zoom in and Tell us more about that. Tell our audience the story of Forward Justice, how it came to be, why why it was formed, you know, the process, what problems are you solving? Let's frame up Forward Justice for a little bit and set that up for our audience who, who may not know about the work that you're doing. And I'd, I love it as you're updating why that name specifically, because I think the process of naming things is really important. If you could just tell us a little bit more about the story of Forward Justice and, and the work that you're doing now. Yeah, we are a law policy and strategy center located in brick and mortar Durham, North Carolina, but that hadn't been the case since March. We've been working remotely uh, all across the state. You know, we kind of operate on three animating theories of change that are intertwined to try to create the change that we want to see in the world. One is that social movements create change, not one organization, not one entity, not a single issue, but movements create the changes that we want to see in this country. Some of our most potent, two, some of our most potent social movements are rooted in the South. We believe DeBose was prophetic. As the South goes, so goes the nation. You win the South, you win the country. And I'll give you a, a three, a couple of illustrative examples of how important the South is. One third of electoral votes come from Southern states. The largest percentage of congressional representation is from the South. 38 of the 50 fastest growing counties are Southern states, right? So it presents these huge opportunities, but we face huge challenges too. When you think of the leading incarcerators on the planet, four of the five leading incarcerators by rate are Southern states. After the Supreme Court gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act by removing the preclearance formula in Section 4 in the case Shelby County versus Alabama, after that case, 11 out of the 13 Southern states implemented voter suppression bills. The monster 2013 voter suppression bill came after the court gutted Shelby County. 11 out of 13 Southern states have done that. When you're talking about livable wages, I think it's 12 out of 13 Southern states have 
implemented kind of preemption kind of laws that prevent local municipalities and counties from implementing ordinances associated with livable wages. So the South is the place. It's really the canary in the mine where they field test all of the bad stuff before it gets exported across the country. Whether you're talking about stand your ground, voter ID, regressive, reproductive rights bills, whatever it is, they field test it down here first and then they export it across the country, right? And so if we win the South, we win the country. And then lastly, those social movements have to be led at their moral center by the people who are most impacted. That's who has skin in the game. That's our formula for winning. And whenever you look at, you know, social movements that created huge change in this country, those social movements were led by the people most impacted, whether you're talking about the civil rights movement, the undocumented movement, our most potent Me Too movement. At the center of that are the people who are under the boot of oppression. And so we try to partner with those types of social movements that at their moral center have impacted people at the center of what they're fighting for. So example, we partner with the Poor People's Campaign led by Dr. Barber and faith leaders, right, at their moral center and and poor folks who are trying to have a revolution of values and have initiated and, and picked up King's mantle to for a fundamental reordering of how we deal with poverty. We partner with the formerly incarcerated convicted people and families movement. And it's a network of leaders all across the country that are that are trying to undo mass incarceration and its causes and consequences. So those are some examples of who we work with, how we work. We implement three major strategies. You have to change law, policy and practice in a way that builds power for our people. You have to shift culture, narrative, and values in the way that you strategically communicate. You know, one of the things that I, I borrowed from Valerie Jarrett at my time in the Obama administration, she used to start many of our criminal justice meetings that with a, uh, this quote that culture change each strategy for breakfast. You change culture, narrative values. You're changing law, policy, and practice. And let's think about the LGBTQ movement, right? And Mm -hmm. marriage equality. Think about how important will and grace was in helping shift the popular culture that is acceptable for two people of the same sex to love each other and want to spend a life together. That helped lay the groundwork, right, for what we saw in the court. Similarly, as disreputable as his name has become, Bill Cosby and the Cosby Show, right, in the way that it shifts the cultural landscape and how we thought about the aptitude of Black people and people being intelligent and having normal families just like everybody else, I would I would submit that that lay till the soul for the election of a Barack Obama because it fundamentally changed the way that people thought about a particular group of folks, right? So you have to shift culture values in the way that people think about these issues. And then lastly, our last strategy is really building people power. You have to have a base of people that will hit the streets, that will hit the halls of the General Assembly, that will do whatever they have to do to advocate for change, that will go to the polls and vote to be able to effectuate the change that you want to see. So that's kind of, you know, who we are, who we partner with, and how we do our work. Yeah. This is big work, obviously, and you said it earlier, so I feel a little badly saying this This is a relevant topic right now. Everybody's talking about it, right? You live this, you wake up thinking about this. I love this next question. We ask all of our guests and we get varying answers depending on the focus. Sometimes the answer will be shifting mental models. Sometimes the answer will be something around structure. 
systems. Sometimes it's local government. I'm curious when you think about if you had to name one thing as the largest obstacle that's in the way right now for seeing true justice in your work, what would that obstacle be? Yeah, I'm going to answer the question, Jessica. But first, I'm I'm going to interrogate the premise a little bit, right? Okay. Because I often tell, you know, my fellow criminal justice practitioners, racial justice advocates, there is no silver bullet. There is no one thing that we can do, right, to bring this country into equity, right? Mm. There is no one thing. We are layered upon layered upon layered of Mm. 400 years of laws, policies, and customs enshrining white supremacy, patriarchy, malignant capitalism, and heteronormativity, right? We have built layers and layers and layers upon that. So there isn't one law (laughs) that we could change that's going to open up the sky and the doves come down and everybody live in peace and harmony, right? We got to do a lot of stuff around the issue that we're talking about today. You know, we talk about, and I heard you all using language earlier about voting being a privilege. We need to fundamentally shift that. Voting is not a privilege. Voting is a right. Right. It is a Mm -hmm. fundamental Mm -hmm. right. And that's how we should treat it in this country, right? And I think if we did that, it would shift the way that Mm -hmm. we thought about automatic registration. It would shift the way that we thought about people having access to the polls. That if this is a fundamental right that we believe all of the inhabitants within our borders should be able to exercise, it would radically change all of our policies and practices and implementation when it comes to being able to cast a ballot. Love it. That was great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And you're right. That was an appropriate correction. It is our right to vote. And this is why it's great to be on a call with an attorney. He says, I'm going to interrogate this question. And sir, thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I just sat back and was like, oh, man, I'm on a call with an attorney. Okay, go I'm ahead. I'm like, I'm having some flashbacks <laughs> here, Jess, Daryl. You, you, I don't think either of you know this. I'm the son of an attorney. And so, like, I'm just, I'm flashing back to, like, dinner conversations where, like, it would be like, pass the green beans. That that got interrogated. You know, it's like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything without an interrogation. Oh, so I, <laughs> I'm having, I'm having some, some serious, uh, flashback moments no, here. I didn't Come mean to, to us, trigger, didn't mean to trigger that P- PTSD. Oh no, it's good. It's good. Hey, I like, I like green beans and Hey, I, I, I still from, like green beans. Okay. I, I love my family. So I got, no, not, it's not a bad thing, but I do think, I mean, Daryl, I'm so glad that you took it there because you, you don't have a way of knowing this, but like we talk about this, we're now two seasons in to this podcast. And I think the metaphor that we've used probably most often, Jess, you know, correct me if, if there's one that we talk about more, but it's this idea of this 400 year old tree of injustice that how do you pull up a 400 year old tree? You know, like, like you said, there is no one thing you do. The roots of that tree are so, they run so deep because they've been, it's been growing for so long to be able to uproot it. Those roots are interconnected and you've got to take a holistic approach because it's layer on layer on layer. Every metaphor falls short, but I think that one has really held true for every conversation we've had is that I love when we get a chance to talk to people who view and you know, your mental model of seeing this as not a silver bullet thing, but really something that we, we've got to, it's going to take a lens where we see the whole playing field and we really dig deep and it's multifaceted because we're, we're just not going to see significant change if we are plucking weeds at the surface, thinking that that's change and calling it change when it's really not. So 
this is a powerful backdrop, I think, to this next question. Leaning back into just you as a person in this work, you are a human just like anybody else. The work that you do has to be incredibly taxing, is important work, but also know you're up against things like a monster law. These are deeply embedded injustices that are baked into the fabric of our society. That's hard work and I imagine is exhausting at times. What is your fuel? Like, what is your why that keeps you going personally in this work? What, what gives you hope? What's your why? What's your fuel? For me, it's, it's my faith. This is a calling for me. You know, for, so for some people get up and go to work. I don't. This is my destiny. This is what I was prepared for such a time as this. Everything that I've been through, the torture chamber of incarceration, the having to dig and elbow and fight to get into every room I've ever been in, was denied admittance into several schools, right? Even though I had a 4.0 GPA, denied admittance into several law schools, right? So every room that I've had to get into, I've had to elbow my way into. And I know that, you know, my steps have been ordered by my higher power, Jesus Christ, God, that, that and my understanding. On like, a you know, just how I'm built personality wise, <laughs> I wake up on petty looking for a fight every day. That's just kind of my, my disposition. So, you know, being in this moment, hey, I'm built for that. So all of the supremacists and the racists and the misogynists, I'm waking up doing pushups for them every single day. Bring it because that's what I do. Um, and, and for meats and sweets, right? So I'm not too deterred by that. And the fact that I know that if God be for me, who can be against me? So I just keep up and yep. keep doing it every single day. And then lastly, man, this thing happened to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Unnecessary incarceration happened to me. Solitary confinement happened to me felon disenfranchisement and having to pay back a $50,000 fine that I've been paying for 196 months. That happened to me. So that's why I go hard in the paint. And that's why we have to have the people that this has happened to at the center of leadership, because they're going to fight to the other one surrenders. That's so good. All right. So we're kind of landing the plane here. For our listeners, they look forward to this last question, which is how can they show up or a week out from election day? If our listeners are listening to this today, right, and they've got a week headed, what and how can our listeners engage? What's one practical step they can take? Yeah, I mean, so we we have some volunteer opportunities where, you know, people can every Saturday we have a virtual phone bank where we're reaching out to low propensity, directly impacted voters, trying to encourage them to register and go go vote. So listeners can participate in that. Obviously, staying educated with newsletter and mm-hmm. being as read and, you know, as the young folks say, as woke as they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly can be to get up to speed about what really is happening and what the foundations of this country are and the the tree that you spoke of. And then lastly, you know, you can always write a check. (laughs) You know, if it's if that's your activism, you can you can write a check to some organizations that, you know, are doing this work and try to support them in doing the work. Yes. Yes. How do they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can go to www.forwardjustice.org and, you know, we got plenty of opportunities to volunteer, sign up for the newsletter, donate. That's one way. Another way is to go to North Carolina Second Chance.org. 
Okay. And then that's a, another way to be involved if you aren't involved in the triangle, because we have some Second Chance Alliance chapters across the state where other justice-involved leaders in North Carolina are trying to create change. Mm. Yeah. Gerald, thank you. Thank you for waking up and mm. doing those push-ups. Mm. <laughs> On our behalf, right? Mm. You wake up. This is what you're doing. We all have we all have a role in this, but this is a personal thank you. I appreciate the intentionality, the the work that you're putting in on behalf of my son and his opportunities to come, the opportunities that I have now, but but really being a champion and being on our show to help our listeners understand this better and hopefully spark new curiosity around systems and policies that maybe and likely they assumed were not as bad as they actually are. I mean, oftentimes we just don't do the work. We don't do the mm. research. We don't have an original thought. And what you did for us today was provide us some groundwork to have some original thinking and to change potentially and shape. What did you say earlier? Movements create change. I was so powerful. I mean, I've heard mm. this before, but like in the context of what we're talking about now with our listeners, movements create change and ideas are powerful. And so what you gave us today was a was a table full of both. And so I just really appreciate I appreciate that context and your time today. Mm-hmm. Grateful Brad. for you, Daryl. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for, for what you do. I know that you've moved our listeners further down the journey that for themselves, wherever they started. And I think that it's inspiring to me. You know, I, I want to go do those metaphorical push-ups. Probably need to do a couple actual push-ups too. But no, seriously, like the, I think the way the tenacity of which you're going about what you do. And the conviction, you know yourself, you know your calling, you know your purpose, and you're, you're, you're laser yeah. focused on it. And you unpacked it in a way where others who maybe don't have your lived experience or don't have your insight or even attorney background can enter into and get proximate to what you're talking about. And I think that you're building bridges in this conversation in which that I'm really, really grateful for. So appreciate you and the work that you do. If you're listening in, you know, get, get involved, uh, hit their website for justice.org, North Carolina, second chance.org. Daryl, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate this. See you brother. Bye-bye. Well, he is kind of my hero. Yeah. I love the way he talks about it. He's so like, he's so sure of the work. He is. And, he um, is. It's confident. inspiring. Mm-hmm. I love that. Not just, what he does, because it's like a double, it's a double inspiration of like, what he does is so important. Uh-huh. And the history of this is so broken, like what they're trying to make right and restore. We talk about restorative justice a lot, right? Like, and it's it's both, he's trying to right wrongs, but he also is just, like you said, that certainty of his purpose. He, he knows, uh-huh. he knows thyself, which I know isn't proper grammar, but he, he does, right? That phrase, right? He, he yeah. knows himself. And there's just so many things as I'm thinking, I'm, I'm taking notes that stood out to me, Jess, and I really want, I want to hear your takeaways. But for me, the things that, that rose to the surface in that conversation is things like until we admit that things are broken, we can't correct it. Mm-hmm. And that movements create change. You know, the social movements that have been led by people most impacted by the issues, they have to be led. Social yeah. movements have to be led by people who are most proximate to the issues, which is a theme that has been the undercurrent from this whole journey that we've been on with this podcast, right? Of the power and necessity of proximity and centering the voices towards change that are being most impacted. That That's why things are so messed up and remain so messed up is because we don't do that. We don't right. center those that need to be centered in these conversations. You know, the, this idea that culture eats strategy for breakfast is such a sticky phrase that is like, man, 
And I think that resonates with us because the power of a story, right? I think that's what it means. Like he talked about giving some examples, but like for me, I can think about that and just, man, if we want to see changes in policy, changes in systems, we can't focus solely on strategy because guess what? Culture is going to beat strategy every stinking day. Yeah. And I think I'll, my, my last one, he didn't say this, but this is a quote from Daryl from an interview I heard from him previously, mo- most recently. Um, and I, we'll drop this in the show notes. It was on CBS. Daryl was quoted earlier this month as saying, the right to vote for someone who has been previously incarcerated means everything. Mm-hmm. It means that I'm a citizen, that I'm a part of the fabric of this country, and it means that I get to participate. And I just, the way he talks about that, of like, who who is in the we, in we the people? Who gets to be in the we? Because the we is the fabric. That's what they're doing. They're trying to reweave a new fabric that really is more inclusive because it is a right. You know, voting is such this fundamental principle that the fabric is more inclusive to all of us. And we're going to be better when that fabric includes all of us. And it doesn't. And that's not an 1870s thing. That's a, that's a now thing. That's a 2020 thing. And we got more work to do. Yeah. I mean, he definitely drove that home, the work that needs to be done, the layers upon layers upon layers. This is one of those moments where for me, it just like, it's, it like pisses me off. Like I get mm. angry with this, this segment, this issue, whatever. It's frustrating. And I think our listeners need to, I don't know how our listeners received the conversation. And we are, our job is to get through thoughtful questions and provide our guests the opportunity to share their thoughts and opinions, lived experience around and their stories around those questions. Mm. So we don't interject or I didn't interject like some of the moments that, that anger me, right? Mm. Like I'm angry Mm. that as goes the South, so goes the nation. Right. Mm. And that the South is like a pilot ground for policies that intentionally exclude portions of our population. Mm. And we know this and it's like this intellectual exercise and these headline exercises where we're just like, well, I hope there's groups out there working on that. That's Mm. unfortunate. You know, Mm. like maybe next year it'll be better. I'm sure somebody's trying to do their part and work on that. But it's like, at what point do we just get as a, as a country, just like, that's enough. No more. Mm. Like, it's not okay. It's not okay to separate. It's like wheat and chaff. It's like this. And who, who has the right to do that? Who, Mm. who's, who has the right to do that? You know, this, we, the people notion that he was trying to, to like really drive home. Like who's a part of that? We, do we, Mm. do we ever sit and ask ourselves that? So when we talk about this idea of the South being so important and we sit here in the South, Mm. we got to start talking about this stuff. We've got to, we've got to take our position on this Mm. solidly versus, you know, I hope it gets better. You know, I'm working on this issue and, but this affects all of us. This affects every single one of us, including you, Rob, as a white man. This is, this is important because we're interconnected. We're interdependent as a country. And whether we try to make ourselves separate, but equal, that's not real. We're interdependent as a nation. Mm. And this type of shenanigans, to use your word, Mm. (laughs) cannot be tolerated. You know, we have too much writing on our young people's future, your four kids' future, my son's future. There's just too much writing on it to just sit back and listen to a podcast and be like, oh, I hope, you know, that was great. I'm glad he's out there doing his work. So I hope 
my show up moment for our audience is like, I hope you're getting angry about this stuff. I hope you're able to articulate it. I hope that when you're in line for 11 hours voting, that you're like, you know what? Something about this isn't right. I've got a 70-year-old man in front of me who can't stand for 11 hours. Is that okay? Mm. That shouldn't be allowed, Mm. right? So these are the things that I've been like, I want to say during the podcast because I'm just so like frustrated by it. And that's my... That's my story and I'm sticking to it this week. And I am more encouraged, frankly, I know it doesn't Mm. sound like it, but I am Mm. more encouraged because his level of like certainty to your point is so refreshing. Yeah. You know, I love that. And it was so good. I I think that we need to, our listeners, I hope that when they're listening to you process this, Jess, like I know I was doing this, like it almost made me like, yeah, shenanigans is not the right word because shenanigans is what you say about something that's funny. And this is not funny. Right. This is this is wrong and it should make you mad. And yeah. if you're not mad with something that's so wrong, you need to assess why are you mislabeling it almost the same way I was mislabeling it with the wrong terminology in this conversation. Because yeah. like, guess what? This should make you upset so that you go do something about it. And that's what this journey for this whole conversation, it's not like we're leaving you powerless. You yeah. can fully let that anger in because guess what? We're giving you ways to channel it productively for change. It should yeah. tick you off. It should infuriate you. Some of these things that people are being, their humanity and their rights are being stripped, right? And that's like, and man, right let me just say, just right like before right our eyes, in front right? of us, yeah. And yeah. I don't care what perspective you're coming from, whether it's faith or non-faith, Republican or Democrat, right? nonprofit or business, because guess what? There's a broken history. When you look at gerrymandering and who draws lines of disenfranchisement, like there has been a lot of people who have leaned into doing that. Now in our history, we need to know the story in North Carolina because man, the disenfranchisement is there and it is, it has been so intentional and so blatant. And we've got to, we've got to face that story of how we got here and it should tick you off. Mm-hmm. It should. I think it a should better word you. for shenanigans in this case might be sinister. Because it yeah. is oh, so... Oh, yeah, malicious or malicious, right? Yeah, like, right under the surface. It's like, we know you see us, but you don't really know how deep this goes. And you don't really know the strategy that's behind this. And you don't really know how many people and how many groups and how many individuals of power are connected into this long game of separating people from their mm, rights mm, and mm. Their, their right to vote and participate in this country. So in the participate in this country's benefits right? These guaranteed benefits. So that's yeah, right. it's a, that's, right. that's a t- that's tough for me because it, it feels just, it's, yeah, it's sinister and we can't pretend it anything else than that. That's right. Because it, while we're sleeping, people are working. <laughs> while we're sleeping, people are working against the systems, right? Against, we know what's right and what's just, which is the right. point of this podcast. It is. Yeah. And that's, and that's the neat thing about this is like, you know, this is not a political podcast, right? But so often issues of justice are political issues, clearly, right? Like, because <laughs> everything can be political or has political yeah. implications, right? And so sure. for us, what I encourage our listeners to do is like lean into the values that undergird these conversations and like press into your own values and like what drives and fuels the way you vote or the way that you lean into loving neighbor, because that was a theme from earlier in this season, right? Like loving neighbor means if you see your neighbor being disenfranchised or their voice being cut out and their fundamental rights attacked, loving neighbor means doing something about that. Just like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, literally you know, Reynolds, Keith and Tammy talking about the, the story of the good Samaritan, like just don't just walk on the other side of the road. Yes. Right. right? That's right. Yeah. 
And I think go do, <laughs> Daryl said a couple of things that are really sticky here. Like he says, I wake up and I do push-ups with this calling on my mind. And he says, he go, he's going hard in the paint. Like, I mean, he's using, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's using some sports That's metaphors good. that are like super sticky. I know you've got a sports background too. So these are, these are metaphors. You're like, That's yeah, yeah, I got I you. It. I'm channeling, right? Yep. But he, he even's <laughs> like, Hey, write a check. If that's your activism, there is something for everybody. Every single person listening to this has a way they can get involved. So don't use that just sounds complicated or I don't really understand, or there is low hanging fruit here. Although the the roots run deep, the fruit is hanging low. Right. That's right. That's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so big that you can't put your arms around it. That's right. And, or there's a step that you can take. Daryl gave you, That's we right. talked about the, the roots and he talked about no silver bullet, but he also laid out a very clear plan of if this is ticking you off, you can go take a step today to yeah. lean more into this history, to get involved with organizations like Forward Justice and helping to, we didn't talk much about this, but like their, their campaign right now is called Unlocking the Vote because literally votes have been locked up in, in the disenfranchisement of people who are, are formerly justice involved, who've been in, intersected yeah. with our criminal justice system. Like volunteer with a virtual phone bank, get on their website, write a check, volunteer. I mean, all this stuff is right there for you. And it's not too late. There's seven yeah. days until the election. It's not too late to go on a journey that will maybe change the trajectory of your life and the way you see these issues. I said, that's all I got earlier. And I guess that was a lot. Now it's really all I got. I'm done. It's good. Well, we will see you on the other side of this election, friend. Yep. We'll see how it yep. goes. We'll see you on the other side. Go vote. 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 vote. That's right. Bring a That's chair. Right. Take some water if you need it, but do it. <laughs> That's right. Do what you got to do and, and do what you got to do to help others along the journey. Do what's right in all this and take take other people along with you, which means if well, you're listening to this and you're and you're inspired, share this thing with somebody that needs to hear it. Share this conversation, yeah. not not so that just podcasts can get more listeners, right? But because more people could lean into conversations that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks, friend. All right, friend. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 